Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us here at Midweek. Thanks for letting us be part of your day. We really appreciate it. Coming up on today's program, Ron Lamberty, Senior Vice President for the American Coalition for Ethanol, joins us to talk about the new um, money that's been announced for an infrastructure program for biofuels, how that may be used, and looking ahead to the announcement we're all waiting for this week from EPA on how they're going to handle small refinery exemptions to the RFS moving forward. We'll also be talking today with the chief economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, John Newton, get his thoughts on the ag economy and with the uh, economic news of the day in an effort to kind of address the coronavirus situation, its impact on the stock market, the, the move by the Fed yesterday in cutting interest rates. What does that mean for agriculture? We'll talk about all that with John Newton. And then also coming up later, I'll have some commentary, my thoughts on the possibility of another round of market facilitation program payments this year and the ongoing efforts by Secretary Purdue and others at USDA to downplay the chances of that happening, and it seems like the more they say it may not happen or probably won't happen, the more people think it will happen. So we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the program as well. But let's start things off with Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report, a guy that's uh, always on the go. I saw him last week in uh, San Antonio at Commodity Classic. He's always on the move. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Uh, well, hi, hi Mike. Uh, well, I'm fine. I'm sitting in a in a taxi in uh, near the Savannah Airport, and it is pouring rain. I've been here for three days covering the National Farmers Union Convention, and uh, I'm about to leave. Uh, but when I get to the airport, I'm going to turn on the computer and watch uh, call, uh, watch uh, Secretary Purdue testify before the House Agriculture Committee. Well, you've got a good signal, so just stay right there for a few more minutes. Tell us a little bit about the Farmers Union Convention. Of course, the big news, they elected a new president. Yes, uh, they elected Rob LaRue, who has been uh, a senior vice president for policy. Uh, Now, that was not an elected position. That's an appointed position. Uh, But Rob worked for many years uh, for Colin Peterson on the House Agriculture Committee, also worked at USDA and the Food Safety and and Inspection Administration for a period. Um, So he uh, may not be known to farmers quite so much, but he's uh, very highly regarded in Washington. Farmers Union delegates also uh, passed a policy calling for development of a permanent disaster program. Uh, yes, I uh, uh, I noticed that too. Uh, there are a lot of people who think that won't happen, uh, but but uh, you know groups always want to ask for things that to which they for which they aspire. Uh, I did talk to Rob LaRue afterwards, uh, and he says that if there is another trade aid package, the Farmers Union definitely believes that USDA should work with Congress on this package rather than just do it completely on their own. Farmers Union is very worried that when it comes time for the next farm bill, 
that Congress will be upset about all the money that the administration has spent on its own through the, through the Commodity Credit Corporation, uh, and that there will be groups that are trying to get rid of the CCC uh, uh, because of the way the money, uh, money was spent. So Farmers Union thinks that if they, if they coordinate, uh, that uh, getting rid of the CCC is less likely. Meanwhile, Secretary Purdue is trying to downplay the idea of another round of MFP payments this year. But uh, I think a lot of people are skeptical uh, because of what we've heard before and the fact it's an election year. Well, I think that's right. And I think that President Trump loves to be the savior who comes in at the last minute and tells Purdue what to do. I mean, then then. Trump personally gets the credit for the for it, and and it would be more likely that people vote for him because uh, he's bailed out the farmers once again. So uh, I, you know, I I can't say for sure that there'll be another package, uh, but Purdue did say uh, if the trade flows don't increase, he knows he'll get a call from the White House saying do the aid package, and USDA will be prepared to do that. Yeah, I'll have more thoughts on that a little bit later on. Meanwhile, uh, also getting a lot of attention, Secretary Purdue talking about the possibility USDA uh, could allow producers to increase coverage under crop insurance because the uh, price guarantees may be lowered. Uh, yes, he did. Uh, he did mention that. I'm not sure how much power uh, USDA has, how much flexibility, uh, because the crop insurance program is supposed to be actuarially sound, and it's based on the, on the uh, you know it's based on the prices. Uh, Farmers Union also said that there should be adjustments, but how much USDA can do on that, I just don't know. We'll have to wait and see. You know, that's an interesting point. The secretary has been going around in his speeches at the at the farm meetings, making a lot of uh, proposals and talking about things USDA is going to do. And, and you wonder, some of them seem to be out of their bailiwick or out of their power or control to do some of these things. Uh, yes, but what really surprises me is how much he's talking about the small refinery waivers, because that's uh-huh. not under his control. That's under the control of the EPA. And he keeps saying that he believes that the, that, uh, the administration shouldn't appeal the court decision, uh, that, uh, that said there was mistakes in the, in the way they put out some of these, uh, waivers, uh, and that they should make the policy that comes from that court decision national. And I'm surprised that, I've been surprised that he's so willing to say that. I don't know whether he all he knows what the administration is going to announce or whether he's putting pressure on the White House and EPA to do it the way that he thinks is best for agriculture. But we should see later this week if EPA comes out with an announcement, but that's been kind of delayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other note, what did the, the delegates at the Farmers Union Convention have to say about climate change? Uh, well, they, uh, you know, they believe there should be, uh, there should be action, uh, on it. Uh, I can't tell you about any, uh, specific policies. Of course, all the farm groups are saying that farmers should get credit for what they're, what they are already doing, uh, on the environment and, uh, uh, and, and in good, uh, good production practices. Yeah. So we'll but, see where, uh, We'll see where that goes, but yeah, that's going to be the big question. Is agriculture get credit for what it has done, and is it a more of a voluntary approach that's allowed or more of a mandatory approach moving forward? Yes. Uh, Rob LaRue did say, one, that, you know, he cited two big problems 
uh, one is what he called self-inflicted, which would be the the trade aid because they don't think that the Trump administration has gone about its trade policies correctly. And the second is that there is a lack of action on uh, on climate change. Um, so we'll uh, we'll have to see how that goes in the next year. And of course, uh, we, this will be an issue in the elections too. Uh, uh, and if Biden becomes the nominee for the Democrats, uh, that seems to be more of a challenge to Trump than if Sanders were to get the nomination. We will see what happens. All right, Jerry, thanks for joining us. Safe travels. Okay, thank you. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Well, we continue to wait for that EPA announcement on small refinery exemptions. We'll talk about that and more with Ron Lamberty, Senior Vice President for the American Coalition for Ethanol, next on AOA. There is more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres? That's smart. In 2019 trials, Credenz CZ0419GTLL had a 2.3 bushel per acre advantage over a competitive Asgro variety in North Dakota. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credenz for a precise variety that fits your field. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. So we have several things happening with biofuels. I want to talk about it with Ron Lamberty, Senior Vice President of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Ron, thank you for joining us. Let's start with the infrastructure announcement last week. Uh, $100 million for biofuels, $86 million of that for, for ethanol. How do you see those funds being used? Uh, well, I think you just gave the highlights there. I, we don't know yet how they're going to be used, but but I think um, what what we asked for uh, when when we went to meetings last November and then gave a uh, answers to their request for information was some money that was simpler to get than the last time around, um, and that individual stations uh, could be focused on because they're the ones that kind of missed the last one. The way the money came out with the the biofuels infrastructure partnership program was that it all came out in giant chunks and you kind of had to know who was going to use it right away, which doesn't work for an individual store owner. They, they are going to take more than 30, 30 days to make a decision. So this time I think we'll see more well-defined um, pathways, I guess, that, that a, a station can go and get money and, and uh, hopefully some of those smaller stations will, will take the money and upgrade to, to either – E15 or flex fuels or both, uh, because those are the guys who moved have always moved our fuel. I mean, when we went to E10, it was individual stations that got into these markets and kind of irritated their competitors and forced them all to, to you know, sell the the new cheaper, higher octane fuel. And I think that's what uh, we're hoping can happen with this round of, of funds for E15. So there'll be what an application process for retailers to apply for some of that money. I think so, and I, you know, last time it was a grant process, which is completely foreign to most station owners. I mean, I own stations for I think 38 or 40 years, um, but you know that grant programs are, you know, where you've got to do some, you know, pre-analysis and pay for some stuff, not knowing for sure if you're going to get the money. 
that just wasn't economical for a, a lot of these smaller operators. So my guess is it'll be, you know, here's the here's the uh, highlights you got to hit, and if you do that, you'll get the money. Um, and it'll, you know, there's 86 million dollars. The uh, that's a little more than what the program ended up spending last time. They authorized 100. I think 84 got spent. So I, I think yes, it'll probably be a, you know, a, a published. Here's what we're giving money for. It'll be a it'll be a cost share more than likely. Um, you'll have to hit certain, you know, compatibility marks because you know we want our stuff to be sold out of stuff that's compatible. Um, but I, you know, I, I think this way it's it's not something where you have to, you know, bundle a bunch of stores up into one number to make sure you get your hands on it. I think it'll be a lot simpler and more straightforward and something that an individual or small chain store owner can do. We're talking with Ron Lamberty, Senior Vice President, the American Coalition for Ethanol. USDA also announcing that they're going to increase their use of biofuels um, in their fleet, including purchasing more flex fuel vehicles. Uh, certainly good news. Kind of makes me wonder why they haven't done it before now. Well, right. I mean, this was sort of, I mean, I think a lot of people overlooked it because I was one of the people that said, yeah, you know, kind of a kind of a shrug. Um, because after all, federal fleets are required to use alternative fuels. The thing is, they're not required to use E85. They're not required to use biodiesel. Um, and I thought some of the stuff that that was in the memo that Secretary Purdue uh, put out was kind of a kind of a scolding to to uh, USDA. Sort of the same way you're saying, why aren't you already doing this? He pointed out that they have, I believe it was 14,000 uh, FFVs in their fleet, and over over 20,000. I think it was 20,000 that that are newer than 2000, 2001 or newer cars, which could use E15, and I think just under 4,000 diesel vehicles. And yet he said that's half of the fleet, but we're only using 4% biofuels overall. So, you know, that number alone will get a lot of volume. But then there's also a, a, a point in there that he's he's going to direct GSA to tell them they have a preference for flex-fueled vehicles and biodiesel uh, or diesel vehicles uh, for the next several years, and they replace about, I think he said, 3,000 vehicles a year. And, and the, the other thing that happens there is that you send a message to the automakers who have kind of, you know, backed off of making flex-fueled vehicles over the last couple of years because of the way some of the credits changed. Um, you send a message to them there, that there's going to be at least one pretty large customer for those vehicles, and Maybe they'll go back to making a lot more versions of them available. At least that's what we hope happens out of it. So I, I think that was a bigger deal than, I mean, certainly I gave it credit for when I first heard it after I read the details, and hopefully that'll move some volume fairly quickly. We're also hoping for a, a big deal this week in an announcement from EPA on how they're going to handle the small refinery exemptions moving forward, and we're hoping they're taking their cue from the recent uh, 10th uh, Circuit Court ruling. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I don't know that they have much of a choice but to take their cue from the Tenth Circuit. It's it's more a question of whether they will appeal and whether they will um, apply that that ruling nationally. Certainly, when they get rulings the other way on things that restricted ethanol use, they applied them nationally, and and we hope they won't appeal because that'll get the ball rolling quickly. I mean, that's there are safeguards built into the renewable fuel standard. Um, those have always been used when they were needed, and these uh, the way they handled the small refinery exemptions was not needed and it was not correct and and they need to do what the court says they need to do so um, 
yeah, we're we're hearing that they'll have an answer, and and um, we're waiting for the answer like everyone else. Yep, and hopefully that's uh, that could be a, a, the big boost that the industry's been looking for. We'll see what happens. Meanwhile, Ron, I I find what's happening in California to be amazing. Uh, when they started talking some of their low carbon fuel policies and things, it looked like there could be some real challenges. Uh, for ethanol in that market and now as it has turned out they've become a a big user a big demand for ethanol in the state of california right especially e85 i mean that's grown from we have one marketer that that um i've known i'd run into him at trade shows and 10 years ago i think he was broke because nobody was buying any e85 and he had sort of hitched his wagon to be the alternative fuel thing, a company called Pearson Fuels. And if you look at them on Twitter, I mean, they're just, they go crazy now. They've got, I think he said they'll have 200 locations by the end of this summer. Um, but they've gone from, I mean, the state of California has gone from three or four million gallons of E85 to, I think, 35 or 40 million gallons just in the past six or seven years. Um, and it's it's a lot of things. It's It's low carbon fuel standard credits. Um, that are being used like we used RINs when the RINs were higher priced, uh, basically being used to reduce the, the price of the fuel. They have a favorable tax treatment in California for, for uh, E85. But then, you know, you've also got E10 is doing pretty well, and where, you know, at one point I think CARB was, you, you thought they'd never approve E15. Um, I think they're seeing that that maybe that's a possibility too. So, um, you know, there there's a some movement that maybe E15 will be approved there at some point. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, what we've, what we've known all along, when people start using ethanol, the mythology goes away. The, the uh, you know, all of the misinformation they've heard goes away because the things that they're told were going to happen just don't. And, and that's, uh, you know, hopefully why California is using more of it. I'm trying to not get overly optimistic, but I am very optimistic that this could be a real bounce back year for biofuels in general the ethanol industry in particular because of all the things we've talked about here especially if epa comes out with a a favorable ruling on how they're going to handle small refinery exemptions from here on out uh, but the things we've just talked about especially this push for the low carbon fuel policies and if we get any kind of break at all on opening up some markets like china to ethanol and ddgs it just seems like maybe the stars are aligning for a big bounce back big rebound for ethanol well, the, the trade is going to be a big part of that, too. But, I, you know, even, you know, the last convention I went to was in Las Vegas, and it's mostly the mountain states. But I talked to two or th- three marketers that were branded marketers, branded BP and Shell, who were talking about them being allowed to sell E15 this year. And that's not something that we thought would happen very quickly. But if the RINs are being enforced, if the, the law is being re- enforced and the SREs are being enforced the way they're supposed to, then that becomes an attractive thing to do, that going to a higher blend, making sure you have more RINs than you need so you can sell them if you have to, becomes an attractive thing to do, plus the fact that it gives you more octane and it costs you less. I mean, it's just the market has never really worked properly for ethanol. We've always been lower priced. We've always been higher octane. And yet, you know, understandably, I guess oil companies would rather use their products than ours. But I think now this is you know, coming into a day when they're looking at these things and some of the regulations and saying, okay, maybe it does make sense for us to use more of this than we talked about. So, it's yeah, I'm hoping it's a great year, too. All right, Ryan, good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Have a good day.
You too. Take care. Ron Lamberty, Senior Vice President, American Coalition for Ethanol. Up next, we talk about the ag economy with John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, here on AOA. Stay with us. There is more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres? That's smart. In 2019 trials, Credenz CZ1859 GTLL had a 2.9 bushel per acre advantage over a competitive Asgrow variety in South Dakota. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credenz for a precise variety that fits your field. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Always good to visit with the Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, John Newton, who joins us now. John, thanks for being with us. Hey, Mike. It's the Listen, it's good to visit with you. It's the shoes on the other foot, my friend. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Uh, let's talk about the, the Fed's move yesterday to cut rates. What's, what impact does that have for farmers, for agriculture? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. If you're if you're buying a house, it's a it's a fantastic time. But uh, in all seriousness, I think when we look at, at interest expenses uh, in 2020, you know the Fed cutting rates. They've been cutting rates. Uh, interest expenses in agriculture are expected to be about five percent of total production expenses. Uh, the interest expense ratio, which is you know divided by uh, uh, the value of production, is also expected to to decline. I think overall we're looking at about a one and a half billion dollar a haircut to interest expenses this year due to uh, the interest rate cuts that we've seen. And that doesn't even include uh, the rate cuts prior to, to yesterday. So I think there's a refinancing opportunity uh, that's off the, also out there for folks. A lot of a focus right now on the ag economy. Secretary Purdue testifying before Congress on this as well. What are your thoughts on the ag economy? I mean, if you look at 2019, you have to look at how it turned out with MFP payments, how it would have been without MFP payments, and that's two different stories, certainly. It, it certainly is. I, I think the, the MFP payments certainly helped uh, some folks, uh, you know, maybe stay in the black a little bit. But, but you know, I think he just said on the Hill today, don't expect a, another round of trade assistance payments. So then we start to look at all the acres that are going to come online. We're going to bring 13 million acres of corn and soybeans uh, back in 2020, if you look at USDA's latest Ag Outlook Forum uh, numbers, we're going to have record corn production. Uh, you know, soybean production is going to bounce back significantly. The second highest corn demand on record, yet we're going to see corn in- ending inventories jump to over two and a half uh, billion bushels. So, uh, how we put these numbers together to make a, a good demand story and, and see a price rebound? Uh, I'm still trying to do that. I think it's a race between supply and demand, and, and I don't think we've we've seen the real impact of, of this coronavirus and how it's going to slow uh, sales to China uh, just yet. Everybody's excited about grain sorghum, uh, but when you look at soybean exports to China, they're at pretty low levels. Yeah, you bring up a good point. I mean, if we get any kind of weather break, meaning favorable weather, I mean, it could be we could be looking at huge production on top of big stocks already and questionable demand so uh, that doesn't set up a very favorable price scenario 
Uh, no, it doesn't. We're we're already looking at corn prices. USDA is at 360. Uh, that's a 25 cent decline from the marketing year average year price the year before. So yeah, if you see uh, yield come in uh, like it has the last few years, well above uh, a trend line, uh, then then we could have more supplies on hand than we uh, are currently expecting, and that means demand's going to need to accelerate even more. And I think a lot of folks are hoping that that China can ultimately live up to their phase one commitments, buy more agricultural products, especially. Um, you know, buy more wheat, more corn, more ethanol, more soybeans, uh, and, and that can help demand accelerate and and help to lead to some higher prices. But uh, we need to see those boats move, and, and those boats aren't going to be moving that fast when people been out of work in China for over a month now. Factories aren't running at full capacity. Uh, they need to eat, uh, but but they're going to change their eating habits when they don't have as much money in their pocket. I think the demand more likely, don't you think, comes in two areas. One would be the livestock sector. If this protein uh, demand continues to grow like we think it will around the world. And the other, I think, is the ethanol sector, which kind of, you know, was the big boost for markets several years ago. I think potentially could be again, if we see this industry take off again with these low carbon fuel policies uh, growing around the country, the increased use of uh, biofuels here, and it's a trade component to this as well, if markets like China open up to ethanol and DDGs, getting that biofuels industry up and going full bore again like it was a few years ago could be a big demand factor. You're exactly right. I mean, when you look at the at the protein side of this, uh, African swine fever has, has devastated China, so they need proteins, whether that be beef, whether that be poultry, pork. You know, pork exports to China in 2019 were up over 300%. So they were definitely in the market uh, in a big way. We've got more plants being approved for export to China. Ambassador Dowd said said recently 500 new beef plants approved for export uh, to China. So the animal protein is, is going to be an opportunity and i think once we get past this coronavirus people have money in their pockets they're going to be ready to buy and and hopefully that that happens and then on the ethanol front i think you know the the biofuels industry's been looking at the export market for a long time uh to to figure out how we can you know export these you know renewable clean energies that we're producing here in the United States around the world. And, and if China comes in and, and starts blending at a higher capacity, that could be a big, big demand boost uh, for domestically produced biofuels here in the United States, uh, something akin to what we saw back in, in 2006 when uh, we, we started this buildup to what, what's now 40% of the corn crop every year going into ethanol. So I think you know that's, that's where the ethanol industry's been, been building their fires for a number of years now. So hopefully it comes to fruition. We're talking with John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, let's take a look at the dairy sector. What's your outlook for dairy in 2020? If you would have asked me a couple months ago, Mike, I would have had a – well, we probably did ask a couple months ago, and, and my outlook has, has changed. I, I think that uh, we've seen price weakness uh, hit these markets in, in the last month. We're moving in uh, to the spring flush, milk production. Uh, while it's slowed, is 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 quick to respond to higher prices, and so – you know, back in December, when we were looking at, at dairy margin coverage, the probability of that program triggering uh, was was very very low. Uh, and I just looked at the the information uh, a couple of days ago, and now we're looking at a, a greater probability of that program kicking in. Uh, so when I look at milk prices, when I look at dairy markets, I, I really hope that farmers 
uh, have got some DMC coverage. I hope they laid on some dairy revenue protection coverage uh, last year when milk prices were at their highest level since 2014 uh, because I do foresee lower prices on the horizon. What are your thoughts on what we're seeing with farm debt, uh, farm de- uh, you know, bankruptcies, delinquencies, things like that? What are your thoughts any, and concerns for the ag economy here in 2020? Well, I think when you look at farm debt in 2020, it's projected to be $425 billion. Uh, in inflation-adjusted terms, that's, that's the highest it's been since uh, the 80s. Uh, when you look in, in, in inflation or, or non, you know, real, real dollars on the real estate side, uh, farm debt is at record highs uh, in both measurement uh, for real estate debt. So, so it certainly is a concern. I think you're seeing more and more farmers uh, across the country in recent years Taking some of those that short-term debt, maybe that high-interest debt, and rolling it into their long-term debt, uh, so so that's a concern. It, it's not something that's sustainable long-term uh, there. And then on the bankruptcy side, you know, the bankruptcies have been trending up, uh, and, and that's the you know that's that's not that's not good. That's not a good indicator, but you do put some perspective on it. They're ten times lower uh, than where they were back in the '80s. So uh, while they're moving in the wrong direction. They're nowhere near, uh, you know, the, the historical highs uh, that they've been in the past. But it is something that we continue to monitor, uh, given that, Mike, we're in the eighth year uh, of a down farm economy, and that rivals the downturn in inflation-adjusted dollars and net, net cash income uh, that we saw after World War II and that we saw in the 80s. I think the MFP payments that we got in 2018 and 2019 – uh, we're a lifeline for folks. I think we'd be in a much worse situation had you not gotten those, those assistance payments. I think there's still strong demand for, for land values out there, and that's been a saving grace for farmers. Uh, but I wonder what that would have looked like had we not seen uh, this influx of assistance uh, the last two years. Yeah, sometimes I'm, I can, I'm concerned that we, we, I mean, we take solace in the fact, well, it's not as bad as the 80s. We always compare everything to the 80s, and that's it's good that we're not as bad shape as the 80s but that doesn't mean it's good necessarily now i mean there are a lot of problems that uh, we can't ignore that uh, certainly need to be addressed as you pointed out uh what about uh, this news now that uh, there could be a drop in crop insurance price guarantees we know how big a part of the farm safety net crop insurance is what are your thoughts on that well it, it, it there was a drop you know we looked at uh during that february price discovery period for corn and soybeans uh, wheat and cotton, uh, the crop insurance prices are all lower. Corn at 388 per bushel in Illinois is the second lowest over the last decade. Soybeans at 917, the second lowest in the last decade. Uh, so crop insurance guarantees on that spring price are lower. I think one of the areas that that's going to impact folks, they sit down with their lenders, uh, their minimum guaranteed revenue is going to be lower because of those crop prices being lower. So that means their their borrowing capacity, you know, takes a hit as well uh, because of the downturn that we're seeing in the crop insurance guarantees. Uh, you know, we a lot of folks buy the harvest price option, so you have an opportunity. You know, if demand picks up, if prices pick up, and you have a crop loss, that harvest price option can kick in. Uh, so the story's not over yet. You know, we got to wait until. Uh, October when we when we do the harvest price discovery, but uh, make no mistake, it's it's caught the attention of a lot of folks. I saw the secretary made remarks um, interested in whether or not there could be an administrative adjustment to crop insurance uh, because these rates are so low. Yeah, we'll be watching that closely. All right, John, always good to talk with you. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. 
Take care. John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, his thoughts on the ag economy here in 2020. Well, Secretary Perdue continues to downplay the chances of another round of MFP payments this year, but even the president has said uh, he's keeping his options open on that. That's still a possibility. I think a lot of people are very skeptical uh, when the secretary says there won't be. Many people think there will be. I'll talk about that coming up next. My commentary on MFP payments next on AOA. There's more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres, that's smart. In 2019, trials across 10 Midwest states, Credence Soybeans with Liberty Link GT27 averaged 1.8 bushels per acre more than the competitive Enlist E3 soybeans and 1.5 bushels per acre more than the competitive Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credence with Liberty Link GT27. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. I have covered every Secretary of Agriculture since uh, Bob Berglund in the late 70s in the Carter administration. And it's interesting to watch Secretaries of Agriculture. Some really seem to thrive in the job and grow in the job. Others have struggled with it and never felt really comfortable. So it's interesting to watch each one. But one thing for sure, it is a tough job. You're trying to represent farmers and what's best for agriculture. But at the same time, you're also serving, uh, you know, your boss, the president of the United States. And sometimes politics and policy can get in the way of what you might personally think is best for agriculture or when you're out speaking to farm groups what you know that they want to hear and you don't always uh, have uh, the answers that the, that they want to hear. I used to tell Secretary Johans that he delivered bad news well. It seems like he was a lot of times having to deliver some bad news. I remember Jack Block uh, in the 80s, you know, those were tough, tough times for agriculture and he wasn't always very well received at some of the farm meetings he had to speak at because the times were were so tough and he didn't always have uh, things uh, to say that they that they wanted to hear so it made it difficult that being said uh, secretary purdue has um, got his share of challenges i i think he's doing a good job i think he's probably the right person to serve as secretary uh, under this president because we know that uh, president trump uh, his style uh, creates a certain amount of um, uh, tension at times and creates some real challenges for those working for him that being said the fact that Secretary Purdue is still working for him this late into his uh, the administration uh, into this term s- says a lot about uh, him and his willingness to work uh, with all the changes that are going on because we know a lot of others in the, in this administration have have moved on for various reasons so it's a tough job but all that said I want to look at what's going on right now. The Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, is on what I'm calling a MFP, Market Facilitation Program Payment, denial tour. Wherever he speaks these days, he's usually asked about whether there will be another round of MFP payments this year. And his stock answer is that it is not 
in the plan at the moment. Key words at the moment. But unfortunately for Secretary Perdue, he has a bit of a credibility problem here. For several reasons, people are skeptical when he says there probably won't be MFP payments in 2020. One reason is, we've heard this before. Just last year, we heard USDA officials repeatedly say farmers should plant for the market and not government payments. They said they did not want to influence planting decisions. Well, how did that turn out last year? Payments were made, and planting decisions were, at least in some cases, influenced. So now we're hearing the same words repeated, and after last year, those words kind of lose much of their impact. Now, another reason people are skeptical is the messenger himself. Now, this is nothing against Secretary Perdue, but what we have learned is that he often is not the one we need to hear some of these things from. For instance, when it comes to trade, we've learned to wait till we hear from Larry Kudlow. When it comes to biofuels, we wait to hear from Andrew Wheeler at EPA. So even as Secretary Purdue downplays the chances of more payments, his boss, President Trump, has made it known he's at least considering it. And that brings us to the biggest reason people are skeptical. It is an election year. And the coronavirus has created even more questions about the timing of China's purchases under the Phase 1 trade deal. This certainly gives the administration cover to grant another round of payments if indeed this drags on longer into the year and those, uh, and those shipments to China are not happening as quickly as many had hoped. I felt all along that the best indicator of whether or not MFP payments will be made this year are the polls. The tighter the political polls are as we get closer to the election, then the greater the chances of payments being made are. There's just no question the payments that have already been made have been needed, and they've helped a lot of producers. We just talked about that with John Newton. If you look at the ag economy last year, you'd have to look at it with the payments and with what it would have been without the payments. There's also no question the payments will be scrutinized for years to come. They've already led to higher basis in many parts of the country as producers have not felt the urgency to sell grain they have in storage. That's an impact. They've also, these payments have created some grumbling among farmers themselves about the formula used to determine what parts of the country get the most money and which commodities get the most money. There's just no way the government can pay out such large sums of money, needed or not, without drawing some criticism. There's also the the school of thought that this may make it harder to get the next farm bill passed, maybe harder for to get money from Congress in the future for, for agriculture because of the money that's gone out in MFP payments. But we'll see. That'll be something we'll watch down the road as this story continues to be written. President Trump, of course, is no stranger to criticism, and he has repeatedly shown that criticism won't keep him from doing something that he wants to do. So will there be more MFP payments this year? I'd say there's a good chance more payments are coming, but the best advice I've heard given is don't center your marketing plan for 2020 around them, thinking they're going to come for sure. Better to be pleasantly surprised than bitterly disappointed, even if it's not that big of a surprise at all. So we will see how it plays out, but the more Secretary Perdue talks about 
they're not going to make more payments. I think the more people think there's a good chance they will, the two key words being election year. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk with a former Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. He was in that job for eight years. He had his ups and downs, certainly, during his time at USDA. He's now President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. He'll join us tomorrow to talk about the impact of the coronavirus on ag exports in general, dairy exports in particular. Hope you'll be joining us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Have a great day, everyone. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions.